0: Welcome to a special edition of the Plymouth Plantation podcast. I'm your host, Hilary Goodnow. On Saturday, October 24th, Stephen O'Neill, curator and associate director at Pilgrim Hall Museum, spoke on the evolution of the Puritans and Separatists' funerary and burial practices throughout the 17th century. He is introduced by Vicky Oman, director of Public Programs and School Services. Enjoy. We're very excited to have Stephen O'Neill here today. Stephen O'Neill is the Associate Director and Curator of Collections at Pilgrim Hall Museum, which is downtown Plymouth. So he has touched almost everything actual Pilgrim that exists at this point. He is the expert on that, and he is also the person in the world who I would ask about this subject. He's done a lot of research about death and funerals and funeral practices in early Plymouth. And in the early colonial period. So I'm very excited to present to you Stephen O'Neill. Thank you very much, Vicky. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Um, what I thought I would talk about is just sort of some of the sources and all of the different aspects that happened with a 17th century funeral, with a 17th century burial. Um, one of the things that most people find truly uh, astounding with these burials is that they are very restrained. Not much happens, and um, they're very sort of quiet affairs. So we'll see wh- how that ties in to their religion and to their culture at the time. <coughs> um, as you see up here, there's a, a picture of the top of a, a gravestone uh, from the 1660s. It's the top of the Phineas Pratt gravestone. Pratt was here in Plymouth in the early 1620s. And this is what you'll see when you go into most burying grounds in New England. The winged skull, um, sort of a, a little uh, crossbones, there's a coffin, there's a crossed pickaxe and shovel, and above it is an hourglass and this is Fujihara. All of these old images are old medieval images. They are images of time passing, they are images of mortality, they're images that the Puritans of New England tr- really adopted on their gravestones. But what's very surprising is very few Plymouth colonists, relatively, have original gravestones. Of the Mayflower passengers, there's only one original gravestone. and We'll see some of the other originals in a few minutes. But to start with, for the separatists, um, they wanted nothing like a large mass. There were no memorial masses, there were no memorial services, there was no sort of... Um, Extended prayers that were offered In 1634 A separatist minister back in England Named John Cann wrote In The Necessity of Separation that Concerning burials This they say All prayers either over or for the dead Are not only superstitious and vain But are also idolatry And against the plain scriptures of God Mourning in black garments for the dead If it be not hypocritical Yet it is superstitious and heathenish Funeral sermons, they also utterly condemn. Nonconformists, as separatists were sometimes called, will have the dead to be buried in this sort, holding no other way lawful. Namely, that they be conveyed to the place of burial with some honest company of the church without either singing or reading. Yea, without all kind of ceremony heretofore used. Um, other, than, other than that the dead be committed to the grave with such gravity and sobriety as those that may be present Uh, may seem to fear the judgments of God and to hate sin, which is the cause of death. And thus do the best and right Reformed churches bury their dead without any ceremonies of praying or preaching at them. For all of these colonists, most of the colonists who came to Plymouth Colony and then Mass Bay and Connecticut, New Haven colonies, they were Puritans, they were separatists, they were good Calvinists. In uh, Calvin's interpretation of uh, Christianity, everything was predetermined. It was already decided by God whether you were going to heaven or not. So there was no point in having an idea of purgatory. There was no point in having masses for the dead or memorial services like the old Roman Catholic or even the Church of England had had at that time. So images of mortality... Images like this engraving from 1605. This is a vanitas uh, from the phrase vanitas vanitatus. All is vanity out of the book of Ecclesiastes, meaning everything we own is just temporary. We will all die and everything is for naught. So you see that in this image here, you get a bunch of old medieval images for death and time. Skeletons, hourglasses, uh, shovels and pickaxes. And this sort of iconography gets translated into the language of the time. Samuel Fuller, who came over on the Mayflower in 1620, wrote in his will that I, Samuel Fuller, the elder, bequeath my soul to God and my body to the earth until the resurrection. They put in this sort of stock language. They asked to be honorably interred or decently buried is the phrase that they usually use. They still were hopeful that one day they would be resurrected. Uh, They had a belief that Christ, when he returned, would resurrect the dead, and those among them who were saints, who were among the elect, would be raised as well. But remember, everything is predetermined by God, so even if you are a leading member of the community, you are never certain if you are actually saved and going to heaven or not. So that sets up a lot of tension and anxiety that lasts for about a century here in New England. Now, when the colonists arrived in Plymouth in 1620, they encountered the native people, the Wampanoag, the Nosset, the Massachusetts, uh, the Nipmucks, and Narragansetts, and they had very structured burial practices. Uh, one of the more famous sort of excavations of all time is in 1832, The, quote, skeleton in armor was found down by Fall River. It was uh, the body of a man who was fairly young, but his knees were drawn up, and he was covered with uh, brass plates and had uh, a belt of tubular beads all around his waist, various other pieces with him. They were metal. So for a long time, the 19th century, people were trying to say, well, maybe he was a Viking, maybe he was a Phoenician, maybe he was a European. But chances are, he was a contact period uh, Wampanoag who was buried with the sort of grave goods that the Wampanoag buried uh, their dead with. What they would do is they would bury people with personal items and adornments uh, covered in reed mats, their body painted with color, usually red ochre, uh, positioned with knees drawn up, usually in a southwest um, orientation. So they're almost in the fetal position. Uh, the bodies are covered, and they're covered with reed mats. That's important to remember for the distinction between English burials and native burials uh, when we get to Coles Hill. Um, the Purit, uh the Wampanoags, as Roger William points out, also had a tradition of mourning as well, mourning for the dead. And he uses the phrase sikoti, or the word, meaning he is in black. That's how William tran- translates it. He said, the men, the Wampanoag men, as the English wear black mourning clothes, wear black faces and lay on soot, very thick. So they're covering themselves to show mourning. Um, one of the more interesting aspects of Wampanoag burial customs is after a person dies, it's taboo to say their name. You never say the name of the person who died. You refer to them as the dead person or the dead woman. Oh. Uh, very sort of interesting uh, approach to death. <coughs> This is the sarcophagus up on Coles Hill, right across from The Rock in downtown Plymouth. And here you see the list of names that of the passengers of the Mayflower who died the first winter. Most likely, they were uh, all buried up there on Coles Hill. Um, About half the number died that first winter. And mostly for expediency's sake, they were buried on Coles Hill. Um, Reverend Thomas Prince uh, had access to Bradford's original manuscript and papers, and Bradford had a chronology uh, listing out who died at what time during that first winter. And from that we are able to reconstruct uh, the names of the people who died that first winter. I'm always struck one of the names uh, that always sort of sticks out is John Turner, who came over as a single father with two young boys, all three of whom perished that Mm -hmm. first winter. Death was something for the pilgrims, for 17th century English colonists, that was always surrounding them. Um, By the time you were, from the time you were a small child, you were taught that you will one day die. And it was reinforced through the uh, very strong Calvinism uh, that they practiced. Um, One of the quotes uh, from Robert Bolton, who was writing in 1635, Uh, rather gruesomely writes the body when the soul is gone will be an aura will be a horror to all that behold it a most loathsome and horrible spectacle those that loved it most cannot now find it in their hearts to look on it by reason of the griefly deforminess which death will put upon it down it must into a pit of carrions and confusion covered with worms not able to wag so much as a little finger to remove the vermin that feed and gnaw upon its flesh You really go all out. Um, (laughs) And so molder away into rottenness and dust. When the soul departs this life, it carries nothing away with it, but grace, God's favor, and a good conscience. So when they are dying that first winter, and Bradford records that it's a general sickness, those who are also building houses also have to bury the dead. Chances are Coles Hill was picked as a burial spot, simply because it was very hard to drag a dead person all the way up to Burial Hill, uh, which becomes the later burying ground. <coughs> and here you can see, this is a picture of the remains that have been found over the years at Coles Hill. You can see on the left, <coughs> there's a map uh, drawn up by my friend Craig here the archeologist. In 1735, bodies were found right here in the middle of uh, at the very end of Middle Street. Others were found 1855, 1883, 79, early 19th century. The remains of at least 11 people have been uncovered from the top of Coles Hill. Now, one of the theories is, well, what if they were natives? I mean, this had been the native village of Patuxet. Natives have been here 10,000 years. Chances are they were buried up there. But all the graves that were found were lying prone, lying flat on their backs, And with an east-west orientation. Their heads were uh, towards uh, the western end of the grave. And that is a traditional English manner for digging a grave and laying a body in it. The idea is, uh, if your head is towards the west, on the day of resurrection, you will sit up in the grave and facing towards Jerusalem. Facing east towards Jerusalem, where the Messiah will reappear. So we know that these were English graves. These bones were placed in, the, in a uh, vault that is now under the big sarcophagus up on Cole's Hill. Now what happens is the English colonists here and throughout most of New England, whenever they set up a town, one of the first things they do is draw up where all the property lines are including a space for a town common, a common land for common pasturage, and a space for the meeting house, and a space for a burying ground. This happens over and over again in all of the towns that are founded here in New England, Boston or Roxbury or Springfield. Chances are it happened here in Plymouth too. In 1620, uh, there's that little simple map that William Bradford draws, drawing out the plot lines of some of the original homesteads. Chances are, had he been able to finish his little map, he would have marked off Burial Hill at the top of Leiden Street. <laughs> Most uh, burying grounds, if you look at them in New England, they're on the tops of hills, or they're on sort of uneven, uh, broken ground, simply because there's better farmland and a hill is easier to use for a burying ground slash watch uh, area for a fort. There was a fort erected on Burial Hill uh, as late as the 1670s. It was known, actually, as Fort Hill throughout the 17th century. And personally, I think the first burial that occurred up there was John Carver. Governor Carver had survived the first winter. He made it to the spring, and then all of a sudden, he went out into the fields one day, complained about uh, being hot, came back and died within a few days, probably of heat stroke and his wife died about five or six weeks afterwards. Mm-hmm. Governor Bradford records that John Carver was buried in the best manner they th- they could, with some volleys of shot by all that bore arms. So it was a military funeral. It was a state funeral, basically. He was the governor of the colony. So what they did is they probably brought him up here, and ha- they had marked off where the burying ground would be. Chances are he is buried up there. People argue against me. Uh, there's no real way to know, but this is my feeling about it. Now, are there any descriptions of funerals from Plymouth Colony? No. But there is one from Boston in 1642. Thomas Letchford wrote a book called Plain Dealing or News from New England, and it was published in London. And he wrote that in Boston, like here in Plymouth, at burials, nothing is read, nor any funeral sermon made, but all the neighborhood, or a good company of them, Come together by tolling of the bell and carry the dead solemnly to his grave. There stand by him while he is buried. The ministers are most commonly present. That's it. Basically a procession up to the burying ground or into the burying ground, and then the body is buried, the grave is dug, covered over, and you go back. Um, This burying ground, as I mentioned, doesn't have many 17th century gravestones. There's only about six, uh, and most of them date from after 1681, this earliest date. As we'll see, chances are there probably were wooden markers, there were field stones up there. Uh, as uh, it's assumed that Governor Bradford is buried up there, 1656, uh, 57 is when he dies. His wife, Alice Bradford, uh, dies on March 26, 1670. Uh, changed this life for a better, was honorably interred on the 29th day of the month aforesaid at New Plymouth, and she specifically asked to be buried near her husband. See that a lot in a lot of the, the uh, wills. People ask to be buried near their spouse, near their children, uh, near their relatives, and that's how, for a lot of these locations, I've been almost. Awkward, almost. Been able to come up with where many of the early colonists have been buried over the years. So, we've got Letchford's description. Now, how exactly do you handle the funeral? When someone dies, uh, what you did is you quote laid out the body. You lay out the body. It was clothes were too expensive and too valuable to be buried with the person. So the clothes would be taken off. Body would be cleaned and washed. Wrapped in a uh, winding sheet. And the winding sheets were linen or wool or some fine cloth. Wool was used most commonly. And you can see from this illustration from 1604, it's, when I originally thought of a winding sheet, most people probably think like a mummy, right? You know, the little strips going across, but it's more being wrapped up in one large sheet, which is tied at the feet and tied just above the head. Sometimes they were also tied at the knees uh, to give a little bit more strength. The arms of the person, uh, instead of being crossed like this, more often than not, they'd be down by the sides, by the thighs, or down, uh, just crossed over the sort of the lower stomach uh, in the, the pelvis. Uh, that's been found in a lot of excavations of English burials uh, in the tidewater and some descriptions around here. Um, Clothing uh, vigil was wa- was held to watch over the body. Medical science being what it was, you had to make sure the person was actually dead at this time. A vigil is also a way uh, to say goodbye to the person. Embalming was not often performed. Peritons back in England actually forbid embalming. Embalming is the removal of fluids and soft tissues, making a body inert. Um, But there is evidence that embalming was done here in Plymouth, in Massachusetts, as early as the 1660s, uh, 1650s and 60s. So a little bit different already. Things are a little different from back in England. In uh, 1655, uh, Anthony Gilpin, uh, out of his estate, um, people uh, down in Barnstable, um, his estate paid 11 shillings and sixpence for laying him out and other pains about him. Is preparing the body. Webb Addy, one of the very poorest of Plymouth colonists, who died in 1652, uh, lists in his uh, probate record that out of his uh, that Mr. Rayner was paid for a winding sheet, four shillings. Uh, John Granger of Marshfield had a shroud that cost two shillings back in 1656. Others were buried in a Holland sheet, which is a much finer material. Um, usually, it was typical wool. These are bits of the shroud That was used to bury Miles Standish In 1656 When Standish died He specifically asked to be buried Near the body of his daughter Laura And daughter-in-law Mary Back in 1891-92 They had lost track of where the captain was buried And did some excavations The old burying ground over in Duxbury They found the remains of an older man near the remains of two younger women, as well as near the remains of a young boy, possibly his, his boy, uh, his son, Charles. These were taken from the grave. Uh, and you can see they are rough pieces of wool, uh, browned uh, with age and dirt. This piece over here and a few other pieces I've seen actually have that interesting little blue stripe in there. That's indigo dye. So this is a coarse wool cloth, probably made locally, that's dyed in a pattern with indigo that's being shipped up from the Caribbean on the Tidewater. We've got a few uh, pieces of that on display over at Pilgrim Hall Museum right now, along with some others, if you really want to visit them. Um, Once the body is wrapped, um, what would also happen sometimes is sprigs of rosemary or some flowers would be sort of tucked into the sheet uh, to mask any odors. Sometimes uh, later on, 1650s and 60s, uh, a shift and a cap would be affixed to the body as well, as well as a piece holding the jaw, uh, because the jaw, once dead, sort of falls down. So that would be tied up as well. And then there's digging the grave and making the coffin. Um, Plymouth Town Records in 1651 record that ordered that all graves, especially for grown persons, be digged five foot deep. In 1657, they repeat the order. It was ordered that all graves, especially for elder persons, shall be digged five foot deep, and that all such as have any occasion to employ in any digging of graves shall see that they be digged so deep. Graves, as I said, were always on that sort of east-west axis. When gravestones start to appear, if you look at a lot of the older burying grounds in New England that haven't been touched or, or moved around too much, most of the big headstones face west. Uh, so they're at the head of the, the person, the grave, and then there's a little footstone right at the foot. So just like a bed, the gravestones are placed on either end. This image from 1651 shows diggers um, preparing the grave And they are also making the coffin. If time and money allowed, here in New England, they made coffins. On Coles Hill during the first winter, probably not. The people were probably buried as fast as possible. Here, um, coffins take on different shapes. By the 1630s and 40s, um, mostly you've got this sort of gable-peaked coffin. It's not the familiar old hexagonal shape that you would see. There's actually quite a variety of coffins at this time. There's these that just sort of taper down and have a gable lid right at the top. Some are hexagonal with a flat top. Some are perfectly rectangular, basically a pine box. And others are hexagonal with a gable as well, very elaborate. It depended on time and money and the resources. Uh, One of the um, sort of interesting aspects of my collection at Pilgrim Hall is we have this little piece, which this is a 19th century label, piece of Governor Bradford's coffin taken from the grave, May 1835. Uh, that was when the monument to Governor Bradford was erected up on Burial Hill. And my predecessor, Dr. James Thatcher, first librarian and cabinet keeper, so <laughs> the original curator, went up there and while they were leveling out the ground, took this piece of wood, a knot, from the coffin, uh, from the gravesite. Also on display right now, in uh, the exhibits, we have a piece of Standish's coffin taken from when he was exhumed. One of the interesting, um, uh, uh, another fact is, when Peter Brown, Mayflower passenger, died in 1633, Kenelm Winslow, the brother of Governor Edward Winslow, was paid for a coffin 12 shillings kenelm winslow was also one of the first and most important furniture makers here in in plymouth and some of his pieces still survive he's a well-documented joiner and very fine furniture maker yet he also made coffins uh, as a side so you've got the coffin the body is prepared um Thomas Thomas Letchford, as I said, at burials nothing is read, nor any funeral sermon made, but all the neighborhood or a good company of them come together by tolling of the bell, carry the dead solemnly to his grave, there stand by him while he is buried, ministers most commonly present. Funerals are very subdued affairs. There's no prayers offered by the graveside. Probably a lot of people find that very difficult. Uh, You know, you see a lot of funerals with, you know, the rituals surrounding them. Well, these colonists had wanted to purify all of the trappings of, they saw as superstitions from the Roman Catholic uh, Church of England. Roman Catholic Church, Church of England. So what they did is they stripped down the funeral to the very basic procession and walked behind them. Now, one of the interesting aspects of this is uh, there's other evidence uh, for what is exactly going on with this. In 1645, the Directory for Public Worship of God, back in England, recorded that when any person departeth this life, let the dead body upon the day of burial be decently attended from the house to the place appointed for public burial, there immediately interred without any ceremony. It was recorded that Traditional ceremonies are, quote, in no way beneficial to the dead and have proved many ways hurtful to the living. Now, there's other sort of aspects that go on with this. Um, One of the interesting things is that after 1630s, 40s, things started to change. Funerals started to take on a little bit of a different aspect. They weren't as sort of Spartan and Puritan as the earliest ones. Um, um, when William Bradford died in 1656 uh, this year it pleased God to put a period to the life of his precious servant Mr. William Bradford this worthy gentleman was interred with the greatest solemnities that the jurisdiction to which he belonged was in a capacity to perform many deep sighs as well as loud volleys of shot declaring that the people were no less sensible of their own loss who were surviving than mindful of the worth and honor of him that was deceased So when Bradford died, like Carver a couple decades earlier, he's given a sort of state funeral. There are volleys of shot. Chances are, unlike some of the early ones, they were probably wearing black once again. Um, In 1655, the year before Bradford, Edward Winslow died, but he died at sea. He was down in the Caribbean, serving in the Penn and Venables fleet that took Jamaica for the English. General Robert Venables, in his account... Uh, said on, uh, you know, when we came within sight of a small island uh, just off Jamaica, com- Commissioner Edward Winslow died, and he was thrown overboard. The general, vice admiral, and rear admiral shot several guns at his funeral, a traditional burial at sea. And but there is again the funeral shots, this sort of uh, salute that they are offering. And one of the other sort of interesting little facts is in 1646, a group of pirates end up sailing into Plymouth. They are English buccaneers, basically, under Captain Thomas Cromwell. They had served down uh, around uh, Jamaica. And uh, they headed up this way, and unfortunately, Captain Cromwell got into a fight with one of his crewmen. He ended up killing the drunken crewman by hitting him with the blunt end of the sword so that the hilt went right into the side of the man's temple. Uh, Captain Cromwell was tried by a court-martial, but acquitted. And then there's an interesting little one sentence in Governor Winthrop's history. Um, The trained band accompanied the body of this crewman to the grave, and the captain gave every one of them an L of black taffeta for a mourning robe. Here is Captain Cromwell, who had been in England just a few years earlier. He is having a full funeral here in Plymouth in 1646, so they are dressing in black. The early Puritans didn't want that, so now things are changing, and probably by the time of Bradford and the others, they are dressing in black, they are assuming more of the ceremonial aspects of the funerals. Now, up here, you can see there's this great little detail from a uh, this is from the broadside of Major Thomas uh, Leonard of Taunton from 1713. The broadside itself, the original, is actually from the 1660s. And it shows, in one little section, a bunch of people dressed in black behind the coffin, which has a pall stretched over it. By the early 18th century, black cloths would be draped over the coffin as it processed uh, to the burying ground. And also, By the 1670s and 80s, another sort of convention reappears in Puritan funerals. And the first instance of a prayer at the graveside occurs in 1685, the first recorded prayer. Uh, Mr. Wilson, minister of Medford, prayed with the company before they went to the grave, recorded Samuel Sewell. So by 1685, things have changed. The last of the old comers are passing away. And this here is a picture of a broadside elegy printed on the death of John Alden in 1687. Um, uh, there were two printed up, and um, one of them was written up by John Cotton. Elegies were a sort of easy way to remember one of the dead. They were usually very long uh, poems, um, you know, talking about how good the person was. So by the 1680s, funerals had really changed somewhat. They'd taken on more of the old trappings that had been lost. There's one last aspect, marking the grave. The first gravestones uh, were probably just field stones. If you go into some of the more untouched rural cemeteries and burying grounds throughout New England, you'll see paired field stones that knock off graves. Wooden uh, markers were also used. Um, In 1702, Samuel Sewell records going to view the burying place down in Barnstable, see Mr. Wally's epitaph on a rail broken off and tumbled about. Unadorned wood, a coffin rail, or a coffin post is not going to last very long here in New England throughout the winters. Over here on the left is a picture of the original uh, configuration of of, uh, Captain Miles Standish's burying spot. And you can see two triangular-shaped stones. Even the military captain of Plymouth Colony, when he died in 1656, his grave was only marked with rough field stones. And as I said, when they excavated him, they discovered it was him uh, because they knew that Standish had requested to be buried in a decent manner, and if I die at Duxborough, my body to be laid as near as conveniently may be to my two daughters, Laura Standish, my daughter... Um, my daughter, and Mary Standish, my daughter-in-law. And that's exactly what was found. The earliest dated carved gravestone in all of the old Plymouth Colony area is actually way over in Rhode Island, over in East Providence. And it's this W.C. 1659. Early carved gravestones start to appear with just names, uh, just initials and years, starting in the 1650s. Most of the earliest ones were probably... Um, destroyed or sunk and chances are there weren't that many on the right is the gravestone for Richard Moore that's the only original gravestone for a Mayflower passenger Moore came over as a little boy uh, maybe about 5 or so and he died in around 1694, 95, 96 about 84 years old late in the 19th century they added died 1692 a Mayflower pilgrim Very plain gravestone. Doesn't even have a full epitaph on there. The only gravestone for a passenger from the Anne and Little James uh, is Thomas Clark up on Burial Hill, 1697. Uh, He lived to 98 years of age, a good long time. And you can see by the late 17th century, gravestones which had started to be carved up in Boston start to appear all around. And this one has this great shield with these three cherub faces. Very hopeful image. Nothing like the traditional images you would expect. Mm -hmm. And um, on the left over there, you see the only original gravestone for any passenger aboard the fortune. That's for Thomas Cushman. Cushman was uh, a teenage boy when he came over with his father, Robert, uh, aboard the fortune. Robert heads back to England, leaves Thomas behind here. Thomas is raised as a foster son by William Bradford. Thomas Cushman ends up becoming the second ruling elder of the church here in in Plymouth. He follows (laughs) Elder Brewster. Cushman dies in 1691. His wife, Mary Allerton Cushman, the last living survivor of the Mayflower Voyage, dies in 1699. They are both buried up on Burial Hill. But this gravestone, uh, which says that you know he died in 1691, we know for a fact is not erected and paid for until 1715, almost 25 years after the, the elder's death. In the church records... <clears throat> it's recorded that August, 17, August 7th, 1715, a contribution was moved and made both by the church and congregation to defray the expense of gravestones set upon the grave of that worthy and useful servant of God, Elder Thomas Cushman. The whole congregation was very forward in it. So by the late 17th century, by the time the last of the early Plymouth colonists were uh, passing on, funerals had changed Funerals had become uh, much more sort of the common variety, which we see. There are prayers offered by the graveside. Gravestones are being paid for. There's still elements of the old, uh, you know, the images of mortality. Uh, Here you can see this is a uh, funeral ticket uh, for the uh, funeral of Sir William Phipps, first royal governor of Massachusetts back in London. And you can see similar imagery. There's a, a a body here there's crossed stones, uh, hourglasses, skeletons, you have the skeleton in the middle, um, memento mori, meaning remember death. The gravestone images are similar and these images get picked up and used on gravestones even as late as the 1780s here in Massachusetts. What that image is, the skull the, with the wings, is thought to be an image of the soul of the person who's died after death, but before judgment. So remember, back in the old Calvinist idea, you're never really certain if anyone is uh, saved or not, going to heaven or not. So you can't put very hopeful images on there. Um, And a lot of Massachusetts, Plymouth, Connecticut gravestones still have winged skulls or very sort of uh, uh, immediate imagery. Because these stones, once they start to be erected, Even the language, it says, here lieth buried the body of the precious servant, or here lie interred, or here lieth. It's not, as you'll notice at the the revolution, the change to in memory of. This gravestone is not erected for the memory of the person, it's erected for you, the viewer of it, to remind you of your own death to remind you that just like this worthy servant of God, you too will one day die. Very much an immediate sort of visceral reaction. Um, Up on the left is the final signature of Peregrine White. Peregrine White was the little boy born aboard the Mayflower while it was anchored out in Provincetown Harbor. His cradle's in my museum. If you want to come by to take a look, at it. but at my museum we have not only his cradle, we have his final will and testament. He lived until 1704. Up there you can see the mark of Peregrine White and a little bit of a spidery hand. P.W. Uh, he wasn't in the best of health when he di- when he uh, wrote out his final will. Um, um when White uh, when Peregrine White died. His death was noticed in the Boston Newsletter, and it recorded, uh, the Boston Newsletter for Monday, July 31st, 1704. Marshfield, July 22nd. Captain Peregrine White of this town, aged 33 years, and eight months died the 20th instant. He was a vigorous and of a comely aspect to the last, was the son of Mr. William White and Susanna, his wife, Born aboard the Mayflower, Captain Jones, commander in Cape Cod Harbor, November 1620. Was the first Englishman born in New England. Although he was in the former part of his life extravagant, yet he was much reformed in his last years and died hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Peregrine White was a, a, a very interesting character. The sort of last living memory, last living connection with the Mayflower Voyage. One of the things that's curious about funerals is that even throughout the 17th and well into the uh, 18th century, well into the 1720s, the old style, very sort of um, stripped down funeral processions um, stayed current in a lot of fairly conservative and rural towns. One of the things that had changed even in uh, rural locations is By the 1670s and 80s, they started spending a lot of money on a particular funeral expense, alcohol. They started drinking. By the 1720s, laws had to be passed in Massachusetts, prohibiting people from spending too much money on rum and hard cider uh, for the entertainment of guests Mm. at the funeral. Funerals became, in New England by the late 17th century, very important affairs. People were sent invitations in the form of scarves or gold rings or spoons or gloves, and they would wear them during the funeral. Costs increased for coffins that were sometimes covered with a black cloth with tacks and brads uh, hammered into them, sometimes with the name of the person. Uh, Paul was purchased by most rural congregations, as well as urban ones, to cover the coffin. Uh, And it started to take on much more of an elaborate ritual by the late 17th century, and as well as a serious sort of Irish wake translated to Puritan New England, in which they entertained visitors and guests to the funeral with good amounts of alcohol, as well as food. Uh, But one of the things that uh, is curious is, like I said, old habits die hard around here in New England. Cotton Mather writing in 1726, records that in many towns of New New England, the ministers make agreeable prayers with the people, come together at the house to attend the funeral of the dead. And in some, the ministers make a short speech at the grave. But in other places, uh, both both of these things are wholly omitted. However, as they are not forbidden, as they are in the discipline of the French churches, where the prohibition runs in these terms, There shall be no prayer nor sermon of funerals to shun superstition. So that is my presentation. Thank you all very much. Enjoy the rest of the funeral. That was Stephen O'Neill, curator and associate director at Pilgrim Hall Museum. Thanks for listening to our special edition of the Plymouth Plantation podcast. For podcast updates, to listen to past episodes, please visit our social media channels. We're on Facebook and Twitter with new episodes posting regularly. You can also download all of our past episodes on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.